because I was a young woman, you know, in 1974, I felt like I had to learn everything that Earl did the best I could and get it the closest to Earl that I could in order to be respected as a banjo player. Most of the lead players that I encountered at the time were all men. So I just felt like to be accepted, I just had to be the loudest, the fastest, and the most accurate Scruggs-style player. Greetings, everybody. I hope you are all having an excellent summer so far. I'm so happy to have you join me for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Welcome in, returning listeners, and for new listeners, let me introduce myself. My name is Keith Billick. I will be your host for this and many other episodes, and I really appreciate you tracking uh, me and the old podcast here down. And you know what else I appreciate is the devoted support of my lovely, intelligent Patreon supporters. And today we have a special Patreon supporter of the show, and that is Andy Jackson. Andy lives in a small town in the southwest portion of England, so we have an overseas patron here. And he wants to give a shout out to the Barley Mow Pub in the town of Bath, where he goes to a regular bluegrass jam. So... Everyone over at the Barley Mow, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, by the way, please buy Andy a, uh, a beverage of his choice for me and the podcast here. Andy, thank you so much once again for your support. Uh, everyone can go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter of the show. It really does help, and I truly appreciate it. So if you, uh, if you enjoy what you're hearing and you appreciate all the uh, hard work that I do put into this, uh, please consider going over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and uh, throwing in a couple dollars a month. The other ways to support the show, make sure you give all of the likes and subscribes on all the social medias, on YouTube, on your podcast app. Help me out with the old algorithm. You can also purchase your own world-famous official Picky Fingers logo t-shirts and stickers by heading to banjopodcast.com. And of course, my email box is always open. You can uh, email me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com with all your questions, comments, and concerns. When we say the old five is gonna come alive, you know Today's featured guest is Murphy Henry. Murphy is a fantastic Scruggs style banjo player. She has recorded several full-length albums with her husband under the name Red and Murphy and Co., as well as under her own name and several others. She has written a book called Pretty Good for a Girl, all about the history of women in bluegrass music. And if that wasn't enough, she has single-handedly created legions of banjo lovers and players through her instructional empire known as the Murphy Method. So I was honored to be welcomed into the top secret studio location where many of your favorite Murphy Method videos have been filmed to conduct this interview. We had a lovely far-ranging conversation about all things banjo, so why don't we all give a warm picky fingers welcome to Murphy Henry. Murphy Henry 
um, was actually born in Spartanburg, South Carolina, which I only mentioned because that's where Don Reno was from. Oh, all right. Yes. All right. Uh, I lived there for six weeks. My dad was doing an internship at the Spartanburg General Hospital. He's a family doctor, what we used to call a GP. Mm-hmm. Might even call him a country doctor. Uh, then I moved back to his hometown, which is Clarksville, Georgia, mm-hmm. which is in northeast Georgia. And I grew up there with four younger sisters. Both my parents were, were college graduates. Um, we were raised in the Baptist church, graduated from high school there, went to the University of Georgia. I programmed myself from the time I was a little kid that I wanted to be a doctor like mm-hmm. my dad. I was just absolutely intent on that. So when I went to the university, I was in the pre-med program for mm, two or three years. But then the universe obviously had other plans for my life. It happens sometimes. It does yeah. happen in... Uh, and so I uh, went to a folk club there in Athens and met a folk singer named Gamble Rogers. And he not only played guitar Merle Travis style, he also told these wonderful stories. He's yeah. a storyteller. But if you cannot love me then, Jack Daniels, if you please. Whiskey and water. Here's to fear and pain and sorrow, Jack Daniels, if you please. Look out now. And the interesting thing to me was he was, a lot of his stories were set in the county that I was from, in Georgia, Habersham County. And the people that he was talking about a lot, the Arendales, were friends of mine. And I'm just going, that is really wild. But I loved his music, and I loved his guitar playing, and just became a real fan of of his. Uh, I already played guitar. I'd been playing the ukulele since I was in the fourth grade, taking the requisite piano lessons. Grew up in the Baptist church, singing all the hymns, loved to sing, spent many happy hours uh, in church services, looking through the hymn book instead of listening to the preacher, <laughs> you know, memorizing, yeah. memorizing lyrics. Yeah. Uh, I always tried to sing without looking at the book because I, I don't know why. That's just what I did. So where was I? I lost myself in my own story. Well, I was thinking you were probably getting to the banjo at some point along the way. Well, I wanted to lay this background to yeah, show you gotcha. that, that, when I, that I was not an early comer to the banjo, but yeah. when I got there, I had all this musical knowledge. So I had, was I, of course, took my guitar with me to the University of Georgia as I had carried my ukulele around with me everywhere I went and played ukulele and guitar at various camps that I went to, like 4-H camp and Girl Scout camp and church camp and music camp. I would sort of become the ukulele player or the guitar player that led the singing. Mm-hmm. So I had all that in my background. So when I met Gamble, it occurred to me that maybe I could do some folk singing, you know, around the university campus. So I Got a few little gigs at various coffee houses and started playing as a folk singer. And so that was the background that I had. So Gamble says one night at one of his shows, he says, there's a bluegrass festival over in Livonia, Georgia, which is about an hour from Athens. And I knew the territory. He said, uh, I'm going over there on Sunday after I finished his week at the last resort, which is where he was playing. Uh, you know, y'all should all come to the festival. 
and I didn't really know a whole lot about bluegrass music, but it was kind of like, okay, if Gamble's going, I'm going. Mm -hmm. So my friend Paul Elaine and I went over there, and first bluegrass festival I'd ever been to, saw Bill Monroe, saw Lester Flatt, saw The Country Gentleman, saw Jimmy Martin, uh, you know, didn't really know a whole lot about any of those people, except I had seen Flatt and Scruggs play on TV, on the, their TV show. We got that in Clarksville. And just shortly after that, uh, I, I got a banjo. Huh. And so, so for someone like yourself who already had a bit of mileage on this guitar of yours <laughs> and had already put in quite a bit of work, yeah. I'm kind of wondering why you didn't just become a bluegrass guitar player. What, what was it about hearing the banjo that made you kind of have that shift? Yes. Well, I guess the, 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 I guess the piece that I sort of left out is after I went to the Bluegrass Festival, there was an ad in the Athens paper uh, for a woman named Betty Fisher who was wanted to start an all-female bluegrass band. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I saw that, and I answered the ad, and she lived nearby Athens, uh, went over to her house, took my guitar, played. She couldn't find enough women to form a band, mm. and she was friends with Bill Monroe from her own upbringing in North Carolina, where she had done some shows with Monroe. Interesting. I wrote about all this in my book, Pretty Good for a Girl. Yeah. But Monroe had told her, when she, when she told him she wanted to start an all-female bluegrass band, he absolutely discouraged her. Of course he did. Of course he did. <laughs> uh, and so then, so she got the idea that she would do not an all-female bluegrass band, but just a bluegrass band of, of young men pickers. And so she did that for a while, but then she got where she needed a bass player, and so she advertised again for a bass player. I did not play bass, but I played guitar. Mm-hmm. So that was an easy transition for me. So yeah. I became cool. the bass player in Betty Fisher's band, which was, was originally called the Dixie Bluegrass Boys. But when I joined the band, she did change the name to the Dixie Bluegrass Band, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, Very so, accommodating. Yes, it was accommodating. So here's the, so here's the answer to the question that you were asking. So I'm in the band. I'm the bass player. We had a really good uh, banjo player whose name was Tommy Jackson, just like the fiddle player. Uh, he, he worshipped Bill Emerson and, and played a really good style. And uh, he was younger than I was. So I was about 20, 21. He's 15 or 16. And I could easily see that he was the one that was getting all the attention. <laughs> the oh, band. really? I was just the bass player with a huge apologies to Missy Raines, who is, you know, the star of her show. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just wanted to be more a part of the music. I didn't want to be in the background. Yeah. Uh, so that's when I started learning to play the banjo. So this this uh, fella, Tommy, you said his yeah, name Tommy was? Tommy Jackson. He left the group, I take it, and then there was a uh, an availability? No, or? that would have been way too easy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. uh, he actually did leave the group and uh, had a short stint with Jim and Jesse, but that didn't that didn't wow. work out. He was that good. Yeah. Yeah, but, but that didn't work out. And, uh, you know, I was just a beginning banjo player. I was, I don't know, not, not, I was kind of a mediocre banjo player player but it was in the early 70s and the thought didn't i don't think it occurred to me or betty either one that maybe i could step into that role yeah so she was auditioning a lot of other players and i probably wasn't as good as them but you know i think now you know i could have with a little training and little help i could have been you know i could have been the banjo player but mm-hmm. I also get this piece, which I certainly didn't get then. There's Betty's show. 
And she wanted to be the star of the show, and good for her. She didn't need a, you know, a 20-something young female banjo player who liked the spotlight a lot. Yeah, trying to show her up or whatever. Yeah, not, yeah. You know, not even purposely, but just because I just, that's, you know, just that. Yeah. So, and I'd get that now. You know, yeah. She, you know, she didn't, she didn't want that. And so she, she got other banjo players. So that by this time I had met my husband, Red, mm-hmm. which, which I actually met him at the first Bluegrass Festival I ever went to. This one that you've this just Lavonia, talked about? Georgia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he happened to be also friends with Gamble Rogers because they're both from the state of Florida. Okay. So we had this in connection. Small world. Yeah. It's very small world. So, uh, I met him and, and, uh, we were, you know, starting to date, although I guess he lived in Charleston, South Carolina. I lived in Georgia, so. Uh, a little complicated. It was yeah. a little complicated. He was in the Air Force. Uh, but I spent so much time dating him that sort of Betty sort of fired me from the band. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he played in a bluegrass band in Charleston called Low Country Bluegrass Band. And as it happened, just about the time that all that happened, the banjo player for that band, George Del Porto, was leaving the band and so I was able to step into the role wow. of banjo player. Okay. And I've been playing banjo maybe for about a year, a little over a year. Yeah, yeah. looking back at it, how equipped were you uh, I could to play, be doing that kind of thing? I could play good banjo in G. Okay. But, you know, <laughs> when, you know, when anybody sang a song like in D, uh-huh. not so much. Yeah. <laughs> St- still a bit of room to grow, I guess. Oh, much. Huge, you know, huge, huge amounts. Yeah. So how were you learning? Obviously, you had... I mean, you you jumped right into the deep end in terms of seeing the best of the best right away. Yes. What what did you gravitate towards, and how did you start picking up all this? You know, I just I gravitated towards Earl Scruggs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I don't know why particularly. I had seen them on TV, as, as I said, but I wasn't enamored with his playing, or, or I, I just didn't know enough to be enamored of it. Yeah. So I guess maybe to the Scruggs style because the Scruggs book was available. There was a really good banjo player in Athens, Georgia, named Buddy Blackman, who was a banjo teacher, and he also played in a band with his family. He was he was my age. You know, I took a maybe a couple of sort of loose lessons with him, and maybe he told me to get the Scruggs book, or maybe I had the Scruggs book. Uh, so that was where I was first start trying to learn to play, and I didn't know any of the tunes, Keith. I right. mean, I didn't know Cripple Creek, and right. I didn't know Cumberland Gap. And so when I was trying to get them off the paper, it, it was very difficult. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. But I did also stumble on the Foggy Mountain banjo album. So my my process sort of became, I would try to get it from the Scruggs book and try to make sense of the notes. I mean, I can read music poorly, but it just, you know, the licks don't always follow the measure lines. Yeah. You know, if. And and so that made it difficult for me. And is this also back in the time where the Scruggs book ha- had quite a few inaccuracies on top of all this? <laughs> well, there was that. <laughs> yeah, but you that know, doesn't help either. I didn't know there were inaccuracies, right? You know, so I'm I'm trying to play what's on the page. Uh, but then when I got the album, then I could listen to the songs, and that really helped. Like I I remember having the, the revelation after I'd learned the notes to Cumberland Gap, and it was just playing them slowly and haltingly. That I put the album on and I heard I'm going, oh, that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I could make sense of of the music, but that that became my process, you know, listening record to the records, slowing them down to 16. Yeah. Doing that kind of thing. 
And then which the ones that were in the book comparing what I heard to what Bill Keith had tabbed out. I was, yeah. you know, I was often pretty close and I tried not to cheat. You know, I tried to really get the tune down as best I could. And then I would look and see if I got it right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. One of my favorite analogies is something Alan Mundy told me about learning off of the page. You know, you're sometimes you only see the picture and it's only when you hear the music sped up that it turns into a flip book and you hear and you get to see like the movie as if it's continuous motion. That's good. And it's really frustrating to not quite understand how all these notes are supposed to fit together yes. until, until you hear the the final product. Yeah. No, no. Um, so I think that's similar to what you were I describing. Think, I think that's exactly what I'm describing. Yeah. You know, this might be getting ahead of ourselves, but especially given what you told me about reading the hymnal and wanting to memorize all the words, get, getting yourself off of that page. Yeah. And now with this, you, you've, you're already foreshadowing a lot of your life with this pattern of, <laughs> right. of wanting to get off the page, wanting to learn by ear. And I guess now might as, might be as good a place as any to start off with it. What do you think learning like that, how, how, do you, how did that benefit you? Well, for one thing, I think it enabled me to, to, to keep on trying to learn to play the banjo, because I think if I had stayed with just the tablature, I, I, just, I just think I would have quit. Cause it just, really? Yeah, because it was just so unproductive. Hmm. And it you know it was it just wasn't really fun, but you know I I did you know develop the ear and the thing that that I had that you know a lot of the students that I teach don't come into that they don't have is you know I had I could hear the chord changes because I'd hmm. already done all that work you know by learning to play the ukulele by ear, learning to play the guitar by ear, you know singing camp songs. You don't when you're at camp and you're learning to sing a new camp song, but there's no music. You just get it by the folk yeah. process. Yeah. So I already had that going for me. Just with my whole background just sort of led me to wanting to do it that way or having to do it that way or not realizing, I mean, not really thinking much about it. It's just like, I have to do it this way. Yeah. Interesting. So how far did that group with Red get? I mean, I know you played professionally with him for quite some time, but this was a a different band than you maybe had later, is that right? Yes, it was. Yes, so the, the Low Country Bluegrass Band. Uh, we we probably stayed in. We got married in 1974, so we stayed in Charleston, the Charleston, South Carolina area, maybe for six or seven months. And then early '75, we moved to Florida, which is where he was from. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the end of the Low Country Band. And then for just about a year there, we played with our with his friend Dale Kreider and what he called the Bicentennial Bluegrass Band, because that was in 1975. Okay, yeah. And Dale was a great, great songwriter, incredible rhythm guitar player, wonderful performer. Uh, so we we did not a whole lot of gigs with him, but but some. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, we were starting to go out as a duo, Red and I were, you know, and, and play play some gigs. And, and I mean, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to be full-time musicians. He had gotten out of the Air Force. In terms of the banjo playing in specific, uh, specifically, was your goal to pretty much do the Earl Scruggs thing, or did you feel yourself maybe coming into some of your own stylistic elements of what you were able to do? That, that's, a, that's a really good question, and, and I was actually having this conversation with a friend of mine just, just recently. Because I was so enamored of Earl and his playing, and it, it seemed to be the bedrock of so much of, of bluegrass. And because I was a young woman 
you know, in 1974, I felt like this is a part of it's just you know my internal the, the way I felt. Uh-huh. I felt like I had to learn everything that Earl did the best I could and get it the closest to Earl that I could in order to be respected as a banjo player. So that stood me in really good stead because I'm pretty solid in the Scruggs style. But the piece that it didn't really allow for was a whole lot of creativity outside the Scruggs style. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was a trade-off that I'm okay with. Looking back on it, do you think that that feeling was accurate? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, and I, you know, I admire people like, you know, Alison Brown, who's a bit younger than I am, so she came along a little bit later, mm-hmm. that, you know, she could, you know, learn the Scrugg style, but go on to develop her own style. Yeah. You know, and Gina, my goodness gracious. Right. I mean, she just, you know, she learned the Scrugg style great, but she didn't feel bound by it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and a little bit of that is, uh, I don't know, maybe the pickers that I was picking around with, most of the lead players that I encountered at the time were all men. You know, I didn't re- encounter too many women who were playing the lead. Uh, so I just felt like to be accepted, I just had to be the loudest, the fastest, and the most accurate Scruggs style player. Yeah. You think you maybe had to like overachieve a little bit to get the same sort of respect that someone's, yeah. yeah. But that's okay. You know, I was okay with that. Uh, You know, sometimes I would think like, wow, I wonder what I would actually play if I weren't sort of locked into this. And, you know, I guess maybe my stuff has veered just a, you know, T90 bit away from, you know, classic Scruggs, but you'd have to be a real you'd have to be really deep into banjo playing to to hear the differences. Yeah, some some fine uh, yeah. fine differences, yeah. 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 Um, I'm trying to think of a, a way to trick you into playing something in terms of... Um, <laughs> you could just ask, Keith. <laughs> well, will you will you play something? But I, I was, I was going to try to incorporate it into a clever question with, oh, you know, okay. of, you know, either maybe revelations you had about the Scruggs style that helped you along that way to, oh. to get that accuracy that you were talking about. I don't know if this is exactly it, but this seems like to me that it, it's a little self-serving because this is one of my tunes, but there's a good story that goes with it. Uh, so this, uh, I hope this is going to be an example of how I took the Scruggs style and made it sound a little bit different in, in in this tune that I wrote called uh, Hazel Creek, and it's a, it's it's the opening tune for all our Murphy Method DVDs. So, uh, and it starts it's it starts off slow and then it goes fast. Thank you. 
Great. Yeah. yeah. So the thing is, uh, like, this is a little banjo geeky, but the, but the first lick of this song. If I didn't, if I didn't warn you, basically everybody listening to this right now is is banjo are banjo geeks. Excellent. So don't be afraid to get geeky as geeky as you okay. want and more. <laughs> okay. So this first lick of this song is nothing more than Earl's Cumberland Gap lick. Just shifted up a, a one fret. So. And I just, I just shifted it up a fret. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, so that's Scruggs style, but it's not something that I, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I don't know if Earl ever did that or not. I don't think he did. And then this part here. So all that stuff there is just Sally Gooden. Right. Even this lick. And this crow lick. Yeah. You know. Right. So it's just Scruggs stuff. Just slightly shifted around. There were quite a few foggy mountain rolls going down the oh, neck yeah, as oh, well. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. going down foggy. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. And this is actually when I was uh, learning to play banjo in the in the early seventies. There was a lick that people were putting in Little Maggie. And then they would go. And I thought that was a really cool lick because it sounds really uh, amazing and it's so easy. Yeah. And so I just took it and went backwards. <laughs> so Scrug style, but shifted a little. Now here's the, the just playing all the wrong notes. All the but wrong yeah, notes. Just yeah. Played Scrug. Yeah. <laughs> All the right notes in the wrong places. <laughs> or that. But so this is interesting that uh, I had uh, an opportunity to actually meet Earl Scruggs one time in, in his wife Louise in their home. Casey and I went to visit them because uh -huh. I had gotten to know Louise a little bit. And, you know, everybody dreams about getting to meet Earl Scruggs, yes. every banjo player. And, you know, and I've thought about, gosh, if I ever got to meet Earl, I wonder what I would play for him just in case I had the chance to play anything for him. And then before I had visited them in their home, I was sitting with them at, at one of the IBMA uh, World of Bluegrass events that in, the, in the restaurant. It was before the award show, and they actually, Earl and Lee's were sitting by themselves. Mm -hmm. So I, I went over and sat with them. And just as part of the conversation, <laughs> Earl says, he goes, I get so tired of hearing the same old thing. And I'm going, okay, if I ever get to see Earl Scruggs, I'm not going to play any of his songs for him because, yeah. of course, he's tired of hearing them. And why would he want to hear me play them? Yeah. So I decided if I got a chance, I would play this song, Hazel Creek, for him. And so I did play that, and, you know, that was amazing to, to be playing a, the banjo for Earl on his banjo. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I know. The, it was, it the, was wild. And so, but when I got I'm done... I'm feeling anxious just hearing about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know how I did it. Just, I, got, <laughs> I got in a headspace or something. And and so when when I got done, Earl seemed interested in it, and he goes like, like where did you learn that? 
you know, and I'm going, well, I wrote it. And then he, and, and I didn't tell him because I, I wasn't what I didn't want to destroy the illusion that I just stole your licks or <laughs> I just played him slightly, you know, off center. Oh, that's great. That was, yeah, I love that. I'm glad you had, I'm glad he tipped you off to that. <laughs> that probably made things a little, a little I know. easier. Can you just, you know, I, I can imagine the disaster of trying to play something that Earl had already played and had probably forgotten about and didn't care. <laughs> you know, yeah. So. Well, I, I would love to launch into some of, of the other areas that you've made your banjo career out of, but I definitely don't want to lose sight of the fact that you're a really dynamic performer in, in, uh, in prepping for this, I was able to find some videos that I think Chris posted of like some old 1983 oh, right, shows yeah. of you and Red uh, and and the band. And you're just bopping all over the place, sounding great on your banjo, singing your little heart out. And like, pe- <laughs> people should check that out. Like, you're you're not just the the patient lady on the videos. Like, <laughs> you, you know, you... Um, well, thank you. I don't know. For I, I wasn't around the music back then so i i didn't get to see it myself but it was cool discovering that i appreciate that I, I, one of the nicest compliments i ever had just coming up in the music when i did it was red and i and betty fisher and i were fortunate to work among some of the giants of the music and one of those was ralph stanley and so he mm. got to see me perform and he just said as an aside one time that I reminded him of a like a female little Roy Lewis. I was going to make that same comparison. Yeah. I think that's really and I, that accurate. Was such an honor, yeah. You know, because little Roy is just the consummate performer, and he does it all and never loses his drive as a banjo player, mm-hmm. or never makes many mistakes that I can see. And his guitar playing, you know, he just he's he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's it's funny that you used the term. You got to play with the giants of the music because that was the other thing I noticed is that next to you, Red looked like he was eight feet tall. Well, he's actually only a foot taller than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, perspective. Yeah. (laughs) Hey folks, Keith here, just taking a quick break from the episode, but I'll be right back with the rest of it. I did just want to mention that if you are looking to have your dream banjo built, or if you just need some of the top quality components to add to a project or an existing banjo, I couldn't recommend anyone more than Sullivan Banjos. Sullivan has been one of the top names in the banjo industry for decades. And Eric Sullivan down in Alabama brings all that experience and adds his personal customized touch to make sure that you are getting the banjo of your dreams. Whether you are looking for a tried and true traditional design, or if you want to get a bit more uh, imaginative, chances are, if you can dream it, Eric can build it. I know that's true because I've been playing my own Sullivan Custom Banjo since 2004. So give Eric Sullivan at Sullivan Banjos a call at 502-365-5022. Visit them on the web at sullivanbanjo.com or email at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com. Now, once you have that Sullivan Banjo in your hands, the best way to learn it that I recommend is with Peghead Nation's online streaming video courses. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and many other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Check out some of these banjo classes that they offer. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, 
the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. All of these courses are going to include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tablature, play-along tracks, and plenty of songs to play along with. Now, the best part is that just for being a Picky Fingers listener, you are going to get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS, all one word, all lowercase, at checkout. Once again, pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS to get your first month free. And folks, another sponsor of the show and one of my favorite places on earth is Elderly Instruments up in Lansing, Michigan. Now, I worked there for about 10 years and it's still where I go for all my banjo, guitar, and any other string instrument needs. So that should really tell you something. Elderly has been family owned since 1972 and has grown to become the world's most trusted source for new used and vintage fretted instruments. So whether you are looking for your first beginner instrument or that hard to find vintage collectible, Elderly is going to have that and they are also going to back it up with the best customer service in the business. So head over to elderly.com to see their full inventory online. They ship worldwide, by the way. Or give them a call at 517-372-7880. So when did the the teaching really become a major part of your focus? You know, as I look back uh, on my life now, I I can see that there's a some things are consistent in my life, and I have been a teacher all my life hmm. because I was the oldest of five girls. Yeah. So when any any time, even before we got into bluegrass music, and and all my sisters played to some extent, even before we got into bluegrass music, when I would go away to a camp and I would come back with all these songs, I mean, the first thing I would do would be teach them to all my sisters. I mean, it wouldn't be like I'd sit down and let's go, okay, let me show you. We would just sing in the car. You know, and I would just start singing, you know, something, you know, that, that we had learned, you know. My gal's a corker, she's a New Yorker. Uh, and then they would just all jump in. So again, <laughs> it's it's the learn by ear folk process. Do you think you were teaching that to other people just so you would have people to sing those songs with? Um, Probably. Okay. Yeah, because it's always more fun. I, it's always more fun for me to have people singing along. Yeah. Uh, so it's hard to know. If, if I didn't have the four sisters, if I would have been singing in the car by myself, might have been, mm. but it just was just the most natural thing in the world. So then when, when I got into bluegrass, then it just, we just sort of changed venues a little bit, you know, and, 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 you know, they, I was playing the banjo. So they, you know, started playing the guitar and we started learning bluegrass songs. All your sisters were learning that as well? Yes. Oh, uh, interesting. Um, my sister Claire, who's the second of the five, uh, played some, but, but didn't make, none of them made a career out of it. But three of my four sisters played in, in our band at one time and when we were in Florida. Uh-huh. Uh, two of them played bass and uh, one of them played the guitar. And my sister Claire never played in the band, but now when we get together to sing, uh, she, you know, she always sings. Yeah, cool. So, uh, so I've always been a teacher. So there's that. So just, you know, as soon as I learned to play a little stuff on the banjo, I, I started teaching, you know, banjo. And since Red and I wanted to be professional musicians, you know, when you're starting out, you don't have a lot of jobs and you, you, you need money. So that was kind of an easy, you know, easy way to make money because I, I like teaching. 
Um, and now, of course, I mean, you, you still keep a, a schedule of in-person lessons, but most people probably know you're teaching from <laughs> the empire that you've uh, <laughs> created of, of all these VHS tapes and now DVDs and, yes. and whatever other formats yeah. are happening. And they actually started now. off as cassettes, just so you know. Oh, like audio? Audio, audio cassettes. Only? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I was not aware yeah, of that. Yeah, check eBay. That's cool. <laughs> right. And and your niche, as we've already alluded to, is the whole no tab approach. Yes. And that's, I don't know, that's got to be challenging as a teacher. You know, the, the challenging thing for me as a teacher was to try to teach by tab because it just was so obvious to me that the students were not understanding what they were playing. They, they it, It's hard enough hearing when you're teaching by ear to have people who are not familiar with bluegrass or music. How do you translate these licks into a song in people's heads? Uh, it, it was I just found it impossible with tab. It, it, you know, and part of it was I don't want to hear music played badly, you know. And so, you know, when I was working out of the Scruggs book, is you know, as good as it is as a representation of what Earl played, and I think Bill Keith was amazing in 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 his tabs mm-hmm. as a reference. I think that's fabulous, but as a teaching thing. Not so much. And I was just having to listen to really bad music, you know, and and I didn't want to do that. You were having to listen to bad music because of people sort of stumbling through those tablets. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Those books, like kind of in a not very systematic way? Yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you might could, you know, you know, I started with Cripple Creek Uh because that was the easiest song in the book. And... You know, maybe people could stumble through that, kind of, sort of. And then, you know, I went to Cumberland Gap because I, I thought that was the next easiest song in the book. And, and all of a sudden, and, and it, there were so many parts of the whole teaching experience that they were missing that I didn't discover until years and decades later. So I was trying to be the best teacher I could be. But, you know, just I, I didn't really know how to teach bluegrass music to somebody. And now I know you have to teach the whole Everything, you know, the chords, the songs, the, you have to mm-hmm. get, you have to have a jam session so students can play. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. But there must have been any number of times where someone just wasn't getting what you were trying to show them by ear and you, it just would have been easier to write some numbers down on never. a page. You, you were. Absolutely never. You were absolute about it. No. Wow. Yeah. No. Uh-uh. No. Because. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it just. Because once you a student goes to the tabs, you know, in my way, in my experience, in my way of thinking, it's a it's a memorization of notes, and even if they can can you know it it doesn't it doesn't go in the right part of your brain, you know, so you can access it for improvising. I mean that that's one of the things I've always said: learning by ear will eventually lead to improvising. Hmm. And I don't think learning from tab does. Now I'm not talking about people that are you know, brilliant musicians and young people like Gina. She would have gotten it if I'd put Tab in front of her. She, I think she would have gotten it, uh-huh. you know, and I know plenty of people, you know, that are great Tab readers and, and great banjo players, but they would have been great anyhow. But, I, you know, the people that I teach, you know, just are the, you know, people that just want to play for fun, aren't necessarily going to be uh, professional players, and to tie them, it just breaks my heart anytime I go to a camp and see somebody's been playing for four or five years and, you know, they can play, I don't know, 10 or 15 songs from tab. But even if they've memorized the tab, they don't know the chords. 
you know, or they don't they don't know how to trade breaks with somebody. Yeah, it's All, not it's not as deep of a learning experience. So. Yeah, and it yeah. also sounds like you're saying that you know you you said you want to prepare them for when they have to improvise. So you're really teaching them more than the song that they're learning because they might eventually be in a situation where they're playing something that they've not never heard before. And now they have a few tools to rely yes. on. Yes. Okay. So yeah. bigger picture. The, yeah, the bigger of, picture. I mean, I yeah. assume people that come in to me for lessons don't want to just learn to play a few banjo tunes, or else they'll they'll come in saying they that's what they want. But but once they you know they've got a couple of tunes under their belt, well, they want to learn more, and they they want to play with other people. Mm-hmm. Most everybody does, even if it's just a guitar player. You know, in order to even play, you know, like, you know, the first song I always teach is is, is Doug Dillard's tune, Banjo in the Hollow, which is just such a wonderful, wonderful song to teach. And, and I have made a few tiny variations, so it's not Doug's arrangement exactly. And just to get somebody, even learning by ear, to be able to play in time with a guitar player and, and not to stop playing when they make a mistake to play through that. I mean, just all these little tiny steps. That yeah. You just, just have almost always have to learn by ear in order to be able to hear it. You you said that um, banjo in the hollow is is a wonderful tune to learn at first. I would love to hear you of, of all the possible choices. <laughs> what is it about that tune that you think um, is just a really good fundamental one? Oh to... yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Let's 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 play a little the the way that I play it with uh, with apologies to Doug wherever you are, Doug. <laughs> that uh, you know I I don't do it exactly like you did it. Uh, so we start this way. So, the reason I choose this song is it, it incorporates what I consider the three basic roles in, in Scrug style playing. Forward roll, backward roll, and then this little roll here, square roll or alternating thumb roll. Yeah. Uh, you get, you know, you, you. You know, this the, the the starting G chord is a little bit of an aberration. This didn't come up too much unless you're playing melodic style. But here you get the C chord. And you get this, you know, you get a pull-off. Uh, yeah, the fourth fret of the fourth string is, is a little bit hard. But these are just really basic. They're just so easy. And there's uh-huh. all this repetition. I've always in my arrangements... I have, um, this is one reason I changed Doug's arrangement a little bit. I have always tried to keep, you know, many banjo tunes and fiddle tunes are divided into two parts. The A parts played through twice and the B parts played through twice. Uh-huh. So I try to keep my A, uh, no, I don't try to. I almost always keep my A parts the same and I always keep my B parts the same. Okay. So there so, isn't second endings and, no, and all no, this business. Yeah. Okay. No, because that is just so hard for students. You, you know, you forget how little any of this makes sense to people that have never heard it before and it, you know it yeah. just it just doesn't yeah you know I, i'm a i'm a perpetually beginning fiddle player 
You know, so when I go to a camp and somebody's teaching fiddle tunes that I've never heard before, even if they're teaching them by ear, I'm going, I can't remember any of this stuff. Right. It's just really hard. And, and you already have repertoire in your head and you know how these things work. And I it's do. still challenging. It's very so challenging. For somebody who doesn't even have that, like, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard. You know, and I, and I would, let me just preface the banjo and the hollow thing. Before a student would do that, we would, we would just go over basic roles. You know, we would do, uh, do a basic forward roll. And, and my teaching of a basic forward roll is, is really just forward. And it has less to do with the music, and it has to do with just people getting the feel of the picks. Oh, we're not on camera. I don't. I'm, I'm showing. I'm showing you my picks. Yeah, <laughs> right. Can they, y'all see? They know those? what picks are. I yeah. think they'll. I think they'll follow that part. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, I just. You know, just. Uh, just trying to get them to move in that direction and the backwards. So I don't try to make it into an eight-note roll because that, again, I don't think makes much sense to. You know. Something that that I think about a lot is, I don't know, I, you ju I just make this assumption that, you know, when I start doing this, that, that the people are hearing that this first note's the downbeat. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people that don't have a lot of musical background don't really have a sense of where the beat is. They Who knows what they're hearing? Yeah. It's just banjo noise. It's banjo Happen. noise. Yeah. 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 Hub Nitchy used that term. I loved it. It's Make some banjo noise in G. Right. Make some banjo noise in <laughs> that's C. What, that's how most people perceive it, I'm afraid. <laughs> yes. Uh, still on the teaching, I guess, what are some major ways that your approach has changed over the years? Have, have you, I imagine you've learned quite a lot about what people need from you. Absolutely. The, I think one of the biggest changes, it took me years to, to even get to this point, was realizing that students needed to learn the chords to the songs, you know, and nobody wants to practice vamping, you know, they just absolutely don't want to practice vamping. So, and I just, you know, made the assumption that, you know, once you've learned a few tunes on the banjo, you're going to try to find somebody to play them with. Uh -huh. I mean, I had my sisters, you know, I'd come home, you know, when I learned to play banjo in the hall, you know, I was excited about it. So I, you know, I'm, I'm showing them the chords to it so they can play with me. And I just assumed everybody would do that. And that is nothing could be further from the truth. Right. Nobody finds anybody to play with. So one of the huge things that I learned is that I have to actually provide jam sessions for students. And that is when my teaching really, my students went from being students to players. Wow. And that, that's, that's just enormous. They are not going to do it by themselves. It's very intimidating. I think yeah. we discount that quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. Or, or they just don't know how to because, you know, when I was learning to play the banjo and showing my sisters, I knew what the chords of the songs were. Uh -huh. But if you're a new player, unless you have a guitar player that's a bluegrass person, when you're playing this, somebody that is playing banjo in the holla, if somebody's not heard the tune, they can't accompany you. They don't know what the chords are. Mm -hmm. Do you have a way that you teach that type of ear training for awareness of chord progressions? You know, the only thing I've, I've ever found that, that, that works or that I'm able to do, well, I, I do play guitar with the students uh, always, you know, in the, in the lessons. So, so I'm, you know, I'm playing the guitar while they're playing the lead. But, and then, you know, I, I've started doing a lot of singing songs. So when, when they're playing their break to it, I can sing and they can hear the chords. 
And but again, when again, once again, you know, you make the assumption that that's going in their heads in the same way it would go into my head as a musician. But really, the only thing I have found that works to put all this together is to actually be in a put the students in a jamming situation with me playing the guitar, two or three or four other students playing banjo in the hollow, vamping and trading breaks. Yeah, that that is what works. And then we just try to build the repertoire up. Yeah. That's the real world right there. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe a small example of it, but yeah, that's yeah. how it, music works. Yeah. That's uh, cool. And then the other thing that is the newest, one of the newest things I've done is I didn't invent this, but brought it into great use in, in my teaching is the idea of just doing some basic open roles in the chords. It just sounds like the simplest thing in the world. Uh, but it was so hard to get there and to to teach it and to feel confident that this is the way to do it. So if we're doing a song like Blue Ridge Cabin Home, you know, there's a well-beaten path on this old mountainside where I wandered when I was a girl. Just your just basic G, C, and D pattern. So I just have students going like, there's a well-beaten path on this old mountainside. Where I wandered when I was a girl. And I, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's the, I call those the roly-polies. And that's sort of the bedrock of, of improvising lick style. Because as you know, as a banjo player, then you can take these upgrades. So you can add a slide. Or you can add a, You know, every lick has an improv. Mm -hmm. And easing students through that, it, it takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so. that all sounds good. But it does let them, the, I'll just say one more thing about that because I yeah. can talk about no, this for on. hours. What it does is give them the ability in a jam session, if they have some chord background, and we would have done that too, we've been working on chords. If somebody plays another song, that maybe has that you know same G C D G pattern or something similar to it, then on the fly, having maybe never heard that before, or maybe having heard it but have never played it before, then the students can at least do this, and that is so hard to do on the fly with other people playing around you. Yeah, it's it, but that is. It's just such a stepping stone in being able to, to improvise. Yeah. Yeah. Even those basic roles can sound pretty musical. They do. When you're accompanying someone who's singing, like it's not, it doesn't take much to, to, to get that and actually be playing music. So yeah. I think you're right. That's a big confidence booster. Yeah. And, and then the people that, that are not, you know, bluegrass aficionados, they think it sounds fabulous. Yeah. You know, you're playing the banjo. Wow. Right. Right. And it, it, it is a huge accomplishment. Uh, yeah. If you can do that on a bunch of songs, yeah, it's great. Yeah, then you're playing. Yeah, then you're playing. Let's let's move to um, maybe your book or even just the general topic of women in bluegrass. I'm wondering. Um, I've heard you say that it was a really common perception that you were the only one around playing maybe bluegrass or, or definitely specifically like scrug style banjo. What do you think that would have done for you to have maybe more women role models when you're starting off? Mm, boy, uh, what would it have done to have more women role models? Uh, 
well, this is this is sort of a fantasy we're in. Anyhow, it it might have enabled me to create more of my own style on the banjo, maybe. You know, because I would have felt like, you know, I don't have to be the loudest Scruggs-style player, you know, in the jam session. You know, somebody's already done that. There are plenty of women that are already doing that. They're, or they're already accepted as great banjo players. I could, I could, you know, build on that and, and do maybe, I, you know. Similar to what you said about Alison Brown, was yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. You know, or, or Gina. You know, of course, just yeah. you know, just that. But you know, part, you know, part of that I don't want to discount. Part of that's just my own personality. You know, mm-hmm. just wanting to be loud. <laughs> <laughs> it, was there any aspect of that that you found motivational in, in terms of maybe having the deck stacked against you and and wanting to prove people wrong? If, if is was that an aspect of this at all? Ah. Uh, I guess it, you know, probably had to be because it, it certainly made me work really hard to get all the, you know, when I was studying Earl to try to get every note, you know, just right and to play it as clean and as hard as I could. You know, I just wanted to be, I mean, I was often in jam situations, you know, as I, as I mentioned with a lot of, uh, with mostly men who were playing lead instruments. And I just wanted to be, I just wanted to be accepted as one of the guys mm-hmm. because I, you know, I, I, and that was the way I thought about it as one of the guys, not as one of the players, because, you know, the other women that I was playing with, you know, were, were more in accompanying roles, you know, bass players uh, or, and guitar players. And that in my own mind at the time, that, that separated me from them because I was trying to do something different. Yeah. Stepping up a little more. Yes. I mean, so it wasn't, I mean, the thing that I found out, when I started writing the book, where it was I described it as blinders falling off my eyes because my perception that I was the only woman playing bluegrass was like, oh well, yeah, there were all my four sisters. There were <laughs> three of them who had played in our band. Okay, there were those, uh, and there were, and then I would just look and go, oh, you know, here was Polly Johnson over in Jacksonville, Florida, you know, playing the bass. Here was Linda Kreider that played, you know, bass with our friend Dale. Uh, here are the two women that played guitars in the Harmony Grits band. I was just looking at all those and going like, there were lots of women there. Why did I not see them? And part of it was they weren't playing lead instruments, and that seemed to make a difference to me. But it absolutely was not true that they weren't there because they were there. And yet it wasn't just you. It was a, that's a common yeah. thing that you heard through writing this book from all the, the women yeah. that you profiled Other women the thought that same thing, too. And then, they, and then yeah. as we'd go along in the interviews, they would go, well, there was Gloria Bell, you know. Oh, and there were the, you know, the Lewis, the women in the Lewis family, you know, uh, Miggy and Polly and Janice. Or, or for me, there was Margie Sullivan playing with the Sullivan family. Uh, it, it was just really, and, and the McLean family, it, yeah. It was just it was a weird kind of thing when you don't see the people that are around you. Still quite outnumbered though. You, even even though you can think of exceptions, um yeah. clearly yeah. <laughs> clearly outnumbered. Yeah. I also solicit Facebook questions for interviewees and I, I managed to get a good handful of these. So really? they, so these are questions from wow. um Facebook followers and listeners of the podcast. Okay. Uh let's see here. I have a feeling I know the answer because of how much time we've already spent talking about him. But uh, who inspired you the most musically? Oh, definitely Earl Scruggs. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, you know, I have to say Gamble Rogers, whom we've all also so mentioned because yeah. he was the the reason I got into being a folk singer. 
and which led me to the Bluegrass Festival, where I met Red, and so we became bluegrass musicians. So th- those two, for sure. Piggybacking on what we just finished talking about, were were you were there any women that inspired you that you remember, or were you not really aware of maybe people like Ronnie Stoneman or? I was not, you know, and uh, I just I, I I was in Georgia and and I was in in Florida, and I just didn't. <sighs> No, you just kind of had your bubble that you. Yeah, it was a bubble. Did, yeah, that's that's about the nicest thing I can say. Was 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 <laughs> the blunders. Was, I was yeah. I was I was in a bubble. I'm, I'm going to keep thinking about that and see if anything occurs. <laughs> Fair enough. Do you have a most memorable moment in music? A most memorable moment in the music. How's that for? Yeah, alliteration. A, yeah. yeah, that is yes. Uh, well, I, mean, I did already talk about you know getting to meet Earl Scruggs. Yeah, you know, so, so that should be pretty up there. Yeah, that was you know that was that was pretty up there. And a lot of, you know, and getting to meet a lot of the greats, I didn't, you know, because I was young and I didn't think so much, you know, it's not such a big deal, you know, to meet Bill Monroe. Oh, that's, but that's just a slightly memorable moment of Bill Monroe when I was playing with, with Betty Fisher. Uh, we were playing at the Livonia Festival and, and we played a lot of festivals that, that Bill and the Bluegrass Boys were, were playing at. And, and as I say, Betty already knew Bill and was friends with him. Uh, and, you know, I was, you know, the the other young, I was the other woman playing in the band and I was young. Uh, anyhow, so I, I'm i not trying to say I was personal friends with Bill Monroe. I was not, but he knew who I was. He was uh-huh. aware of, you know, it was a small world. And so at the Livonia Festival, <laughs> one time I was just hanging out and uh, I, I knew Joe Stewart a little bit, who was, you know, Bill Monroe's quintessential side person. Who played the guitar, fiddle, bass, whatever Bill needed, banjo. Uh, so I was holding Joe's little daughter. Uh, I'm just we're walking around with her, and Bill Monroe comes up to me and says, "Put that baby down." <laughs> uh, okay. And then he he pulls something out of his pocket and he handed it to me. And it was a refrigerator magnet, and it 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 had it said Murphy's Law. Oh. If anything can go wrong, it will. And I'm just going like. Wow, Bill Monroe knows who I am. He bought me a present. <laughs> it was like thoughtful about you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. I, I was just, yes, it was that. Yeah, so that's not a musical moment, but that's a that's a Monroe moment. I hope that will suffice. I'm glad he had a reason to command you to put the baby down because I, I, I'm not sure I would have, I don't know how I would have taken that if he didn't actually have a reason that he was handing where, you like, something. Where was that going? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe he recognized the baby and knew it wasn't yours and was like trying to rescue a kidnapped child. Like, I don't know what I thought, but that's great. Um, let's see. Uh, other than just the general perception of, of all the women being ignorant of each other, uh, was there any... Were there any stories that surprised you during your research of Pretty Good for a Girl? Oh, well, any stories that surprised me? Um, boy, that that is a tough one. I'm trying to think. Um, going through all the stories in my head. You know, honestly, I, there probably were plenty of them, but just being caught off guard to, to answer that question, nothing is coming to mind. Yeah. You know, right now. I'll I'll think on that one, see if anything comes up. <laughs> no problem. Um were there stories that you couldn't put in the book? Absolutely. Any that you feel any, any at that liberty to share? Now? Yeah, you're right. I'm not going to put them in the book, but I'm going to put them on a podcast. Uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> you had to ask. I, I, I had understand. to ask. It came in, <laughs> Facebook tells me what to do. I, I'm uh, <laughs> right, powerless right, in this right. situation. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> um, next question. How does it feel to have helped start uh, thousands of banjo journeys out there? Uh, it feels great. You know, I, I love it. I, I mean, I really do. And it makes me, it makes me really happy that, you know, because, you know, playing music and playing bluegrass and playing the banjo is just such, such a fun, personal kind of thing. And if I can help somebody, uh, you know, get off, you know, get on their feet doing that, that makes me happy. And, and the other part of the, what really makes me happy on top of that kind of happiness is when I can, somebody can come to me that says, you know, I, I, I've been, I can't play the banjo. I've been, you know, just trying to do it by tab and I'm just going like, yes, you can play the banjo, but we, we have to get rid of the tab, you know, and to have people go from thinking they can't play to what, to however far they get, you know, if, if it's, mm -hmm. you know, if it's just two or three or four songs, well, at least they can play two or three or four songs, you know, and it may just open the door for them becoming lifelong banjo enthusiasts. Yeah. But at the very least, you've proved to them that they... That they have musical talent. Yeah. Because so many people think that it's their fault. You uh -huh. know, that I, I can't do this. Uh -huh. Yeah. The other thing that, that just I'll tag on to that, that I'm really super duper happy about is this jamming thing that I was talking about, uh, which leads to people playing. But that totally unexpected spinoff from that was people start wanting to sing because they're at oh. a jam session, you know? And then I've then I have students saying I can't sing, and I'm going like, I think you can sing. No, I've always been told that I can't sing ever since I was little. People have said I can't sing, and I, and if they're really interested, I'll just do something like, okay, see if you can match this pitch on the guitar. Just I'll play a a note which I think's close to where they might be able to sing. Can, can you hum this note? Can you just go la? And most everybody can. I say if you can do that, you can sing. And so we'll just find something. Easy, you know, like I often start with with do Lord or worried men, mm -hmm. uh, and to be able to open up the world of singing to people, you know, that's something you can do, no matter how good you become on the banjo. Yeah. That makes me really happy. Yeah, very cool. I guess we didn't, I, or we we did discuss a bit of your uh, composing with the other piece, but someone is wondering specifically about uh, fried chicken and wondering <laughs> if you compose that on the banjo or if it was more of a vocal song first and then maybe as a broader question, do you have a general songwriting process? Well, now that I'm older and my southern seeds are sold, we do a lot of traveling and eating on the road. When we pull into McDonald's and we order our Big Mac, I can see that Sunday dinner as my mind goes wandering back. When we'd have fried chicken cooked in a big iron skillet, sliced tomatoes and a mess of black-eyed peas, hot biscuit and a bowl of Mama's gravy, string beans cooked with fat mac and a big old glass of tea. Oh, that, that is a good question, and, and thank whoever knew that I wrote Fried Chicken. Uh, most all my singing songs, I, I compose with a guitar. Mm -hmm. I almost never compose with, with the banjo, unless if it's this you know, like tune like Hazel Creek, and I haven't really written many tunes. So it's mostly singing songs that I write, uh, and I do it with a guitar, just getting a, getting a, a line in my head, and then I'll just, you know, just kind of kind of go from there mm -hmm. yeah 
So so it does start with the vocal melody and, it does start, and yeah, it does work start, it backwards starts with from the that. words. Yeah, okay. I mean, I I almost never get a a chord progression in my head. Like I wrote a song that's on the the birthday CD that Christopher did, uh, a square I call it the square dance song, and I got the idea for that song from a square dance caller who was late to being at a square dance. He was saying to another square dance caller. <laughs> If if you know if you get to the dance hall before me, save me a square on the floor, and I'm going like, oh, that's that's a, that's probably an old square dance saying. Yeah. And and I asked him later, he said no, he just made it up on the spot. But <laughs> he, I had written it down as soon as he as he said it. I was we were riding in the car, and I just grabbed a piece of paper and wrote it down, and it just lay around the house for such a long time that words on a piece of paper. And I walked by it one day and I looked at it again. And, you know, if you get to the dance hall before me, save me a square on the floor. And I'm going like, that's out of rhythm. So I'm going like, if you get to the dance hall before me, my darling, save me a square on the floor. And then all of a sudden, we've got, you know, we've got the bounce. We've right. got the music. And and then that just opened the door to the whole, to the whole song. And, but and just I, but it all started with just hearing that little catchy that phrase. Catchy phrase. Yeah. Yeah. And writing it down and then keeping it in front of my face. You know, I didn't do that right. on purpose. It just didn't get, it didn't get piled, it didn't get filed away or nothing got put on top of it. So I just saw, I just kept seeing it. But maybe that's a, a strategy as it turns out, maybe, you know, just takes that one right time of seeing it to yeah. be a little more inspired to, yeah. to figure it out. Yep. Yep. Do you have a favorite tuning to play in? G. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking you might say that. Uh, Only because, you know, retuning the banjo is such a pain. Going back to uh, women in bluegrass, you've, uh, of course, raised a, a woman in bluegrass. And I'm wondering what message, if any, have you given to Casey about this? Do you feel like you need to warn her about that um, things might not be fair <laughs> for mm. her? Or is that something that is better to protect her from as long as possible i am so proud of casey i mean she just is just she is my favorite banjo player she's just yeah. she's just she's just so incredibly good and mm -hmm. i and i love her note choices and you know she plays slightly different style for me uh and 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 that's one of the things i like about our little camps we put on is getting to spend some time with her and hearing her play the banjo mm -hmm. uh, but i just thought she just would learn by watching you know, it's not ever. We never sat down and really had a a personal conversation about you know being women in bluegrass. I mean, she was certainly aware of when I did my women in bluegrass newsletter. Yeah. She wrote for it. She she knew all the things that made me mad. And I remember one time I was writing my banjo newsletter article. We had just been to the Spigma uh, conference uh, in Nashville in January. Uh, and I had had a really good experience playing with some women there for the first time. Louisa Branscombe was one of them. Jane Baxter was another. And Casey was witnessing us women playing together. We were jamming together. That was a little bit unusual. So she came back from the Spigma Festival, and she showed a real interest in the banjo. So I'm writing my banjo newsletter article, and I want to make sure I get this right. So I'm saying, like, you know, Casey came back. She was inspired by seeing me play to start playing the banjo herself. So I'm reading that to her. I'm going like, does this is this accurate, Casey? And she listens to me, and, and she looks at me, and she goes, "No," sort of triumphantly, "No, no." And I'm going, "Really?" And she I said, "Well, what was it that inspired you to start to pick up the banjo?" And she was maybe twelve, or maybe she'll she'll know how old she was. She goes, 
Little Roy Lewis, because she had seen him play on the stage there and, and seen all the accolades that he had gotten. But still during the same weekend. Yeah, that so weekend, from your perspective, it was... It was me. Yeah. Of course it was me. And from hers, it was Little Roy Lewis. And I'm just going like, had to change my story. And that made a better ending for my story. But uh, yeah. And I mean, so she, she, you know, was certainly around everything. Uh-huh. And she took it in, you know, in whatever way she needed to take it in. Yeah. And and I knew it could have gone either way. She could have looked at what I we, I was doing and said, I don't want any part of that. You know, it looks too hard. It's just not fun. I want to do something else. And, but, but she was, you know, willing to, to walk the walk and follow the path. She might have done something silly like go be a pre-med uh, uh, in college and try right. to become a doctor. Be a doctor, or something, yeah. something goofy like that. Yeah, two of my sisters became doctors. So, <laughs> but I'm, you know, good for them. They, they were great. But yeah. that, that just wasn't for me. Of course, yeah. of course, we, we, we need doctors very much. I was only joking. <laughs> um, what, what would be your reflection now about the state of? bluegrass in regards to women's role in it i i I assume you think it has made some progress but uh what's your um i think it's absolutely fantastic i mean it just i love it now that when i get asked that question you know i can just reel off you know woman after woman after woman that 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 people know of Mm -hmm. you know you know you know, with Molly Tuttle, you know, and Sierra and A.J. Lee, who just is, is one of my favorite singers, and sure. Laura Orshaw on the fiddle, you know, and Bronwyn on the fiddle. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, Missy, you know, on the bass, just, you know, laid the groundwork for so many of the, you know, the, the women that, that play bass now. And, you know, Della May just out there, kill it. Sister Sadie, you know, a couple of really right. strong women bands it just makes me so happy so take that bill monroe it was a good idea after all (laughs) you know and the thing that i like is you know the punch brothers just hired britney yeah who's just you know know, she's phenomenal she's phenomenal but this this you know bringing women in you know to all-male bands or just you know having two two women and you know you know you know molly tuttle's got three women in her band and just like it's not this humongous block that's not going to happen. I mean, when I wrote the book, you know, which is 10 or 12 years ago now, I mean, the fact that, that Kristen was playing with the Graskels and had played with Larry Stevenson, that was such a big stepping stone. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and at the time, it didn't seem like that door was opening any further for anybody else. And then and now it is. Yeah. And that, Wow. It just makes me happy for the women who have worked so hard, you know, on their own personal skills to be great players. And and I, you know, give credit, you know, to the to the men who are just going like, hey, the you know these women are great. Danny Richardson, you know, stepping in and playing oh, wow. with the Traveling McCurries. I mean, yeah. just wow. I just yeah could could not be happier. Yeah, yeah, it's going it's going great. Uh, let's talk about your banjo. This is, this is a really cool looking and sounding instrument you have. So tell us all about it and in, in all the nerdy details. (laughs) In all the nerdy details. Well, this, uh, the banjo that I'm playing right now is a 19 to 29. It was a TB4. Uh, it has a, the five string neck was made by, by brother-in-law, uh, Mike Johnson, who's one of the co-producers of Banjo-Thon. And, when Mike Mike made this neck probably 
when we were still in Florida, so over 40 years ago. And uh, Mike has a top tension banjo, and I had played that some, and I loved the neck on his top tension banjo. I love the size of it. It's a little bit smaller uh, than a lot of the Gibson neck and necks. And then I also loved it because it had an arched fingerboard on it. And so when Mike uh, was going to make the neck of this banjo, I asked him to copy his top tension neck. And he did. Right. Uh, and, and so this neck is just suits my hands. It's a little bit smaller. And the arched fingerboard, I just, I love the arched fingerboard. So when we got this banjo, it was an arch top. That was in the early 70s. And Red and I were just, you know, just getting started with our band, uh, Red and Murphy and Company. And I, you know, I love Ralph Stanley's play and probably haven't said enough about Ralph Stanley. I loved Ralph's playing, but I didn't want to play an arch top in our band because I just thought it wouldn't suit our sound. Mm -hmm. So we had the arch top ring uh, taken off the rim. And at the time, Steve Ryan conversion rings were sort of the newest and, and most amazing thing that you could actually make a conversion uh, from an arch top, you know, to a flathead banjo without having to cut the rim. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we got a Steve, one of the early Steve Ryan rings and put that in this banjo. So it made it into a flathead. And I loved it. And I just played it for a long time. And then I got kind of unsatisfied with it. You know, I, could, I just couldn't get it in, to stay in tune, which probably had more to do with my ear than anything <laughs> else, you know, you know. So, uh, became a Stelling endorser. And so I played Stellings for just years and years and years and years. Right. And would, and would probably still be playing a Stelling because I loved my Stelling, uh, except Jeff, you know, is, is closed. You know, he's not making Stellings anymore. You know, I wanted a chance to revisit the Gibson. Right. And so I did revisit it. And then, then it just occurred to me really just last year, I'm going like, I've never heard this banjo with the arch top ring in it, with the original ring in it. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I would like to do that. I'd like to hear how it sounds, you know, a five-string banjo as an arch top. So I took my banjo down to Georgia, where Mike lives, and asked him if he would swap out the, the rings. And so he did, and he let me watch and be a part of the process, and which, which was really fun. Yeah. To, you know, to have, see the whole banjo taken apart and all the guts there lying on the <laughs> table uh, and, and watch Mike make the swap. Yeah. Uh, and, and put it all back together, and it and he put up... Uh, one of Silvio's bridges on it. That that's that that's new, mm -hmm. and it. I just think it sounds fantastic. Yeah, you you could hear. You know, Should have played something more Ralphish. <laughs> there, that's Ralph. Yeah, I think it sounds great too. I I, I do love some arch tops, but at to an extreme, sometimes they can get just weird and pingy, and this doesn't it, have it, that at all. That sounds It has wonderful. a lot of bottom end, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 No, I, that, that, I'd really like that, and Mike, Mike did a great job of setting it up. 
who gave you those custom fingerprints on the head? I was what? hoping you would ask about that. Yeah, I was. <laughs> it's 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 for for the listening audience. It's it's uh, five little dots of blood, right? The, right on the bottom of the uh, of the head. It was my brand new banjo head. David McLaughlin was doing a, a a banjo workshop for us at our Murphy Method camp in April. He, he took a banjo apart, and he was going to show people, you know, all the parts and how to put it back together. And in the process of doing that. He managed to stab his finger, not even on a string, just on some little metal part of the banjo that was sticking out. Of your banjo? Uh, no, he he. It, it was another banjo, mm-hmm. but his finger was bleeding, uh, and so I just made him dot the blood on my head, <laughs> sort of christening it, yeah. so to, so to speak. So I have David McLaughlin blood on my banjo. Yeah, it's a grisly scene here. <laughs> what can I say? I just think it's funny. Yeah, it is. Um, and a cool story behind it, yeah, too. Yeah. Uh, what else are you partial to in terms of uh, picks that you use or, or anything else that you might have strong opinions about, types of heads, setup preferences? Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm really I'm really liking these picks that I'm using right now. Uh, Gabe Hirschfeld turned me on to this, The I guess it's a new, new Dunlop pick, uh, which is, he had a great name for it, but they're sort of the these... I don't, what would you call it? Oh, them? those are the Ultex. Thank you. Uh, thumb picks. Ultex. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what he said. The Ultex Dunlop thumb picks, and they come as when I first started playing the banjo. I loved Dunlop thumb picks. They were tortoiseshell in color, and they just were made out of a certain kind of plastic. And you know, I used them in, until I couldn't find them anymore. Mm-hmm. And and these are the closest I have found to that. So thank you, Gabe. Appreciate that. And then uh, for just years and years, I used Dunlop uh, finger picks, three-hole Dunlops, not not the new ones. I didn't like the new ones so much, but I liked the three-hole Dunlops. Uh, and then those got hard to find, and I kept wearing them out. Uh, so I just went to things I didn't like, whatever was around. And then somebody gave me a set of these old nationals. I, I didn't know they were called this, so David McLaughlin told me these are called Oval 8s. Right. Oval eights. Another Gabe approved. Um, Is that Gabe approved? Oh yeah. Well, that's all. That's very important to me to be <laughs> Gabe approved. And and uh, it took me a little while to get used to him because the metal's just a little bit heavier than what I was used to. But the sound, just you know, and the, the, these picks on this banjo. It's, it's just it's just a great yeah, combination. It's really great. Yeah, I, and then and, uh, yeah, so I'm, 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 it did take a while to get used to them. Uh, you do know, you have it, a way of describing what the, the difference in sound you do hear is compared to whatever the run of the mill um, things you, that you were using? To me, it sounds uh, fuller, hmm. uh, warmer, uh, thicker, not, not, not a thin sound. Yeah. Uh, 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 a lot, lot of body to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. So, so it, it just it kind of all just came together sort of at the same time. Uh, and the strings, I uh, used the Casey Henry signature strings, which are 9, 11, 13, 20, and 9. And I've been using that, that gauge of string forever and forever. I okay. just, I like them. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I don't know. You've done so much. I, I feel like we didn't dive too deep into any one things, but I didn't want to to neglect any of these aspects. So I, I guess I'll open the floor if there's anything we forgot to cover that you feel like you want people to know about you mm. or your playing style or your your uh, instructional business or 
um, anything like that. Um, I guess not not those so much, but I just since you sent since you ask, I'll just uh, give a brief mention about this birthday CD that my son Christopher did for me because mm-hmm. last year I uh, was my seventieth birthday in May, uh, and unbeknownst to me that for much of that year Christopher had been going around recording women doing songs that I had wrote, 23 of the songs that I had written. Uh, he got various women to record them, and he gave that to me as a complete surprise. He made it into a CD complete with graphics, you know, and liner notes, uh, and then surprised me with that uh, at a gig that we played in, in May. Uh, and Ron, Rhonda Vincent was on it, and, and Alice Gerard was on it, and Laura Orshaw played a lot of fiddle on it. Laurie Lewis did a number on it, and Missy Raines did a, a number on it. Vicky Vaughn did a number on it. Uh, I'm, and I'm blanking because uh, I've been talking for so long. <laughs> uh, just the most magnificent job, of, and, and just a com- complete. And, uh, A.J. Lee sang one of my favorite songs. My sister Nancy uh, Pate did uh, a lot of the harmony singing on it and sang a couple of numbers herself. And then my uh, four of my five sisters sang one of the earliest songs that I wrote, uh, Grandmother's Song, uh, which ended with Amazing Grace, you know, in the end. And then I reprised a song that I wrote called Grandpa Rock On uh, for, for the last cut on the CD. And I just, it was just such a labor of love. Yeah, that's quite a project. It was an amazing project. And it just... And that the way I found out about it is we were at the we we're at the gig, we're setting up the sound, you know, getting ready to play, and I'm outside talking to a couple of my students that have showed up. So I walk back into the venue and I'm listening to the the sound on the house system, and I'm going like, that's one of my songs. It was I ain't domesticated yet. And I'm going like, but that's not me singing it. And I, <laughs> I, I've never heard anybody sing my song before. And I'm going, that's Rhonda Vincent singing my, why is Rhonda Vincent singing my song? Yeah, it's really disorienting. <laughs> it was that, you know, and so I'm going over to Red, I'm going, what's with this Rhonda Vincent singing my song? And he says, go ask Christopher. So I go ask Christopher, and, and my hearing that song had really sort of uh, wrecked the, the, the presentation plan that he had, which he, he carefully choreographed it, and it had gone awry in some way, so he oh. he he, <laughs> he rescued it, and he just, he had had the, the owner of the venue, he had, had already had a copy of the CD, so when I went back to ask him about it, he holds up this copy of this CD that says, uh, When My Mama Sang to Me, which is the title of the CD, and it's had a picture of me and Christopher when Christopher was like five years old. 
So this family photograph. Yes, that, this family yeah. photograph with me when I still had dark hair. I've got the guitar and little Christopher there, and we're we're looking at each other. And Christopher goes, happy birthday. And I'm going like, you are kidding me. And I open it up and see all these women's names and all my songs, and it just was that, you know, that talk about the question. That answers the question about amazing musical experiences. There you go. Yeah. That was it. Good answer. That yeah. was just about the most amazing thing. You that's know, really that, cool. That's happened to me. So. Well, uh, you're all over the web with your business and stuff, but just in case people uh, need a reminder, tell tell everyone how to find you and your products and your music. Oh, yeah. MurphyMethod.com. There you go. You got it. Go for <laughs> it. All right. Well, thanks again, Murphy. It's been great talking to you. No, it was, thanks for having me, Keith. I loved it. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. That's going to do it for the interview with Murphy Henry and for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. The song clips you heard in this episode were Fast Picks and Hot Licks by Red and Murphy and Co., The Black Label Blues by Gamble Rogers, Fried Chicken by Red and Murphy and Co., and then In the Shenandoah Valley Long Ago performed by A.J. Lee. Extra special thanks to this episode's Patreon supporter of the show, that's Andy Jackson. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter of the show yourself. Email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com and stay tuned and stay subscribed because I have a whole bunch more of these excellent banjo interviews coming your way. <laughs>